Um, before we begin today, I'd uh, like to, if you don't know, um, Greg Sweet's brother passed away uh, recently, a couple days ago, and so Greg and family are down in Oklahoma City for that. Um, I want we take a moment to pray for that situation and prepare our hearts for the message. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just want to lift Greg and his family up to you, and especially his uh, sister-in-law uh, and their family in this time that you, the God of all comfort, would minister to them. And we pray, God, that as we look to your word today, that you would open our hearts to its truth, that you, by your spirit, would teach us, and that our hearts would be open to all that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> One of the... The main and I, I think too often repeated themes of science fiction is uh, the story of an alien being, uh, a sort of monster who somehow takes up residence inside a person. So you know the kind of scenario I'm describing. Maybe you've seen, unfortunately, those kinds of pictures. And this alien being... This monster inhabits the person without them realizing it. And as the story unfolds, this parasite of a creature slowly but surely takes over the complete control of the host and, and leads him or her into bizarre behavior, uh, perhaps doing things that that person would never have normally done. Uh, things that that person might have otherwise been horrified at but because of this creature dwelling within it has control over the body uh, and, and how that body is used throughout the story then the, the monster continues to grow and influence and um, till it takes complete control then let's say in this story that um, there, there's a way of testing uh, the monster's presence that has become available. It's a, a kind of a light that when this particular light spectrum is shown upon the person, the monster within is then revealed only in that light. And so for the first time, the host person is able to see, because of the light, the monster inside of them. Now what does he do, choose to do? He chooses to keep the monster why? Well, no matter how repulsive or horrible or wicked it may be, the host has grown to accept it. And the monster has gained such a control over the total being of the host that the person cannot conceive of life without it. One of the ways the monster maintains such control is by giving to the host powers it didn't have before the ability to do things that it could not have or would not have otherwise chosen to do secondly to get rid of this monster would involve a terrible painful ordeal and thirdly the monster has been there from birth But not to get rid of the monster inside means sure, unrelenting defeat of the host. And what I'm telling you is not a sci-fi movie or book. What I'm telling you is your life. This is true of you. This is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. That there has been inside of you an alien being that God did not intend for you to have forever called sin and a sin nature and that sin nature has control of you that you don't do the things that you want to do and you do the things you don't want to do and you cannot part with it it has been with you since birth and you have 
quite honestly grown accustomed to it, to like it, and you delight in your sin. And even if there are times that you would like to be rid of it, there are times that you're not so sure you would. That's what Paul is talking about in this last part of Romans chapter 7. So um, let's read verses 13 through 25. Now, except for verse 13, we're just going to read straight through in one flush here because um, verse 13 will take a little bit of time on, but 14 on uh, we'll read as a unit. The reason I'm taking a little bit more time on verse 13 is it's a hinge verse. That is, if you can imagine a hinge with uh, two doors and it hinges to the part before it, 7 through 12, And it hinges to the part after it, verses 14 through 25. So verse 13 is a hinge verse. It relates back and forward and connects these two sections. So here's what Paul says in verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? And he answers, certainly not. No way. Of course not. Now what's he talking about? Why does he raise this question? This is uh, Paul's... uh, rhetorical device that we've seen him use three or four times already so he asked the question expecting a negative answer has then what is good become death to me what is he talking about what is good the previous verse that um, Jeremy ended on last week verse 12 says this the therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good so the law of God is a good thing. It's holy, it's just. But he's been talking about how by the law we knew sin and it killed us. So he asked this question that has then what is good become death to me? Is it because of the law that I'm spiritually dead? I become spiritually dead? Or, or something else? And he said, no, it's not the law. Certainly not. But rather sin. The culprit is sin, see? But sin, that it might appear sin. That is, that you might see it for what it is. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So the commandment, or the the word of God, is the light of that is shown upon your life and it is revealing the sin that is inside. So the light isn't the problem. What's inside is is the problem, the sin. That's what he means in verse 13. Now verse 14 and following. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice but what I hate that I do if then I do what I will not to do I agree with the law that it is good but now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, there's a lot to talk about 
here could, could sum up the, the whole message in a sentence, I think. And that is that the law and the works of the law will never transform you, will never make you right with God. And you cannot have a right life by the works of the law. It's only by being justified by faith. And it's only under the lordship of Christ in your life and the power of the Spirit that you can have spiritual victory. And that's the message for today. So let's pray. <laughs> but amen. Yeah. <laughs> but as we see, there's a little bit more detail to this. So um, for one thing, as we read this passage, a big question that arises in people's minds is, is Paul talking about a believer or a non-believer? And there's a huge debate about this. Which way should we go? Is this a believer he's speaking of or, or not a believer? Is maybe he was talking about his life before he became a Christian. You know, which way is it? And so I just want to briefly address that. First of all, some support for this being a non-believer. Support from the text itself. Support for it being not a believer that he's talking about. First of all, the connection with the flesh throughout this passage is very clear. The connection with the flesh. Like verse 14. Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. That is, literally, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And the argument goes that uh, because he's of the flesh and not of the spirit, he must be talking about a non-believer. Secondly, under the power of sin. He's under the power of sin. Verse 14 again. I know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Not just under sin, but sold under sin. Does that sound like a believer to you? Sounds like the state of an unbeliever. And especially if you go back to chapter 6, verse 6, which says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 6. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin. Now, in light of those kinds of statements to say, I am sold under sin, does it seem consistent with what he's saying of a believer? That's the second argument of why he must be talking about an unbeliever. The third argument The struggle described here in this passage is the need to obey the Mosaic law. Uh, It's true that a couple times he uses the word law that might mean something other than Mosaic law. For instance, when he says, I find another law in my members, that probably doesn't. But most of the times, all scholars across the spectrum agree he's talking about Mosaic law. But if he's talking about Mosaic law, chapter 6, verse 14 says... For sin shall not have uh, dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now we have been delivered from the law. So how can it be, if this is a believer, that he's now considering himself present tense under law? So you see, several pretty strong arguments that he's talking about a non-believer. And that's just three of eight arguments. Now let me give you three arguments for why he's talking about a believer. First of all, consider Paul's shift to present tense verbs. Throughout this passage, he's been talking about the past tense, and as he moves to this section, it's all present tense verbs. And he's talking about himself in the present tense, And so that present tense should be taken purposely and seriously. That is, Paul intended 
to move from past tense to present tense. Some people argue it's merely stylistic. That, that doesn't um, uh, hold much for me, but I, I think that it was a purposeful transition to the present tense and the, the personal pronoun I. In fact, he uses terms like I or myself 26 times in this passage. And connected to all those references to I or myself are present tense verbs like I am, I do, I will, I delight, I desire. Uh, And so we have to take Paul's use of the present tense seriously here. That he means now as he's writing at that time. Verse 25 is uh, a powerful argument for me. Verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what he's doing there, verse 25, he's, he's giving the answer, right? This is the answer to the dilemma. So we already see, here's the answer, Jesus Christ our Lord. But notice what he does after he gives the answer to the problem. He restates the problem. See the end of verse 25? So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, having given the answer doesn't do away with the problem. The problem is still there, present tense. So there's a sense in which knowing the answer does not automatically deliver you from the problem. And that's why Paul could still do it in the present tense and talk about himself as a believer. That is that we as believers still continue to struggle with sin. And um, we'll get to that more later. But it's still a present problem as he speaks. And thirdly, throughout the passage here, Paul speaks of a great desire to keep God's law. He does this in verse 15, 16, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Again and again and again. Uh, Verse 18 and 19, for instance. For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to do it. But I just can't find how to do it. Verse 19. The good that I, I will to do. And notice especially verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I delight in the law of God. Paul has a great desire to keep the law of God. He delights in the law of God. But compare that with chapter 3 verse 10. uh, Where we find a description of an unbeliever. An unbeliever's view of the law and God. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's a picture of a person who's not a believer. And to say, verse 22 of chapter 7, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That sounds like a believer. Now, there's another four or five arguments that could be given forward for this being a believer. And so you see, it seems a little confusing. A person could argue either way here and drawn from this text. So what's the solution to this? Well, when, when we come to this kind of a problem especially, you want to keep in mind that the scriptures were given by inspiration of God that they are divinely given that this is not Paul's life story as much as it is God speaking through Paul that that this is the word of God the inerrant true word of God and it is given word by word as God intended it to give God didn't make a mistake through Paul and say, gee, you know, I wish I'd made that more clear. But just being God, I can't speak that clearly through Paul. So, see, you'd have to think that God messed up here. But if we believe that this is the word of God, that leads us to another conclusion then. If this is the word of God, and it is, and if it's given the way God intended it to give, to give it and it is then it is vague on purpose because 
and this is key to understanding this, I think, because the purpose is not to talk about the life of a believer or an unbeliever. That is secondary at best to the main theme of the passage. And to get lost in that argument destroys the emphasis of the passage, which is the fact that the law, though it is good, is unable to transform a person. That's the main idea. And, and that applies whether you're talking about a believer or an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. The, the thing is, it applies both ways. And the reason it is, it could go either way is because, guess what? It could apply either way, intentionally. So it's not like God made a mistake, but we should view this as God is, has left this question open because it, it applies across the board to anyone who tries to please God by keeping the law they will fail. You cannot by your good works earn salvation or keep salvation. It was never intended to be that way. Works don't work to bring about salvation or to keep you saved. Some of you have been studying through the book of Galatians and let me just remind you of Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Where Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh the same kind of argument that God that God is making through Paul in this section of Romans 7 by the flesh you cannot keep the law of God and you cannot please God and not come up with enough good works to save yourself or keep yourself saved now having said all that I think that for us the best way to view the passage is as believers well because we're believers and since it can apply both ways how we look at it is that and if you think about the broader context of Romans the whole book of Romans to whom is Paul writing to the he says in 1 verse 7 to the church at Rome beloved of God called to be saints so he's writing to believers and since he's writing this passage also to believers, the best way for us to look at it is as believers. And plus, this is our common experience. Paul is not talking about something that is foreign to believers, is he? I mean, does anyone here ever struggle with sin? If you don't, you're lying. That's what 1 John says. If anyone says he does not sin, the truth is not in him. So we all sin. None of us is perfect. And, and sometimes we may even struggle with uh, a sin issue in our life, which is becoming dominant over our life. And we need to have, have victory over that. We identify with this kind of struggle that Paul is identifying. How do we have victory over that? What do we do? Do we just give in? What do we do? So, <clears throat> the problem that Paul is talking about here is I don't do what I know I should do and I do what I know I shouldn't do so why is that and what's the solution okay first point is we cannot have spiritual victory by trying to keep the law and uh, some evidence here that that is the battleground and by the way it's important for us to know that that's the topic here that that's the battleground because if the if the spiritual battle is being fought over here on this battleground and you're wandering off over here onto another battleground you're not even in the struggle you're not even in the battle you're fighting the wrong battle it, so that could be what's going on in your life so what is the battle what is Paul talking about here uh, uh, trying to have a spiritual life by keeping the law or by maintaining good works. 
by, by just being a good person. Well, um, some evidence that this, that's a battle. We know from Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and uh, that the topic is the relation of the believer to the law. When Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, you are no, no longer under law, but under grace, then he goes on to explain what that means to be under grace in uh, verses 15 through 23 of chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, he talks, starts talking about what would it look like for a believer to be under the law? And why is that a wrong thing, a bad thing? And so that's, that's the topic from chapter 6, verse 14 on. <clears throat> Secondly, the prominence of self-effort in this passage. As I said, Paul uses uh, I 24 times in these verses. By contrast, not once does he mention the Holy Spirit. And so we realize, okay, there's something going wrong here. He's talking about I, myself, doing this 24 times in these verses. But not once does he mention the Holy Spirit. When we come to chapter 8, which is a, a chapter on victory, which I can't wait to get to next week, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit 13 times in the first 16 verses. So you see the, the great contrast. I in chapter 7, the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. <clears throat> um, verse 25, the emphasis on I myself. Verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God that I on my own and purposely emphatic there I myself um, number four the law was always before Paul uh, it's a constant reminder to him like verse 16 if then I do what I will not to do I agree with the law verse 22 I delight in the law of God the law is always in front of Paul it's his focus here um and 7.14 is a, a key statement for the chapter and especially this section. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, or I am of the flesh, sold under sin. <clears throat> the law, spiritual. The flesh, carnal. That's the battleground that he's talking about. Um, the reason it won't work is also given us in that first verse uh, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Uh, I am of the flesh, made up of flesh. That is something which is going to be true of you as long as you live, you are of flesh. It's not a complimentary thing. Now this is different from saying you are of, you have a body. Having a body is not in itself bad. Greek word for that is soma, and, and that's used in a neutral way. But the word sarx, flesh, is used uh, in a negative way, always opposed to the spirit. Uh, to, uh, look at chapter, I mean, excuse me, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, hold your place here and just go quickly. 1 Corinthians 3, just look at a few verses there. <clears throat> This is Paul, the same author, writing in 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but to carnal or fleshly, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. You are still of the flesh. He's writing to believers here. Who are of the flesh. Is it possible for a believer to be of the flesh? Yes. Is it good? No. Is it right? No. Should something be done about it? Yes. But it could... It's possible, for you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Behaving like you are merely human. 
For one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. And are you not carnal of the flesh? Now, going back to Romans 6, uh, excuse me, Romans 7, verse 14, Paul says, so we are, are carnal, we are human. We are made of flesh. And e- even when a person becomes born again, when a person becomes saved, there's still some things that we remain true. And that is, even though I'm a redeemed, saved, justified, heaven-bound individual by the grace of God, I'm still human. Right? I am still a human being. I am not superhuman, no matter what Sherry says. I'm not superhuman. So I cannot expect as a non-superhuman person to just be able to wrangle sin and be done with it once and for all on my own, I myself. It's not going to happen. Secondly, depart from divine enablement, we are powerless to do God's will. That is true of us because we are in the flesh. We are not only in the flesh, we are sold under sin. That involves three things. The presence of sin, the position of sin nature as master over you, and the power of sin nature over you. So first of all, the presence of the sin nature in you, that is the alien monster inside of you, the sin nature that you have had from birth. It is in you. That's the monster that you cannot defeat on your own. Now, the position of the sin nature as master over you, that has been broken. That is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6, that sins shall no longer have dominion over you. The sinful nature loses the right to be master over you the moment of conversion. And that's why you are no longer under law, but under grace. And that's why the power of sin has been broken. The dominion of sin, as far as the rightful master over you, that's been broken. Sin has no right to be master over you. Christ is the master of your life. So live like it. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Choose to live for Christ, since he is your master. Then the power of the sin nature over you, uh, the sin nature, because it is present in us, we are subject to its influence and to its power. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's subject to happen. And it does happen. So the result is verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. But for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Why is that? Because even if you have a great desire to defeat the old sinful nature, you do not have the power to do it. Even if you have the the right desire to defeat the old sinful nature, you do not have the power to do it. So now point number two. We do recognize, however, that the new spiritual you wants spiritual victory, right? I mean, you, you've been in this struggle. You've seen sin take hold of your life. You've done things that you've not wanted to do, that you've been ashamed of later, that you regretted doing, that you've repented of, and then you've done them again, and you don't want that to happen. The new spiritual you yearns not to, to live that way. The new spiritual you wants spiritual victory. This is voiced several ways by Paul. First of all, by agreeing with the law. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So this is not throwing blame on God or the law, saying, gee, I wish he hadn't come up with that one, that life would be a lot easier if he had told me not to do this. You know, but 
But I agree with God and I agree with the law that it is good. The new spiritual me has that view of the law by agreeing with it. That what God says is right. Not only agreeing, but delighting in the law. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. By delighting in the law. And he says here that it is according to the inward man. Everywhere else that Paul uses that phrase, the inward man, is clearly speaking about a believer. Always about a believer. Delighting. So here, delighting in the law is as a believer. We, we, we want to do the law of God. We, we can read Psalm 119 along with David where he exalts the law and the commandments of God and say that it's good for me to know your word and to follow in your ways. And then there's also the desire to do the law, not only agreeing with it and delighting in it that it's a good thing, but desiring to actually live it in verse 18 and 19, for instance. But though we desire, it's still not enough. Number three, the enemy within, which is the old sinful nature, drives us to spiritual defeat. First of all, consider the presence of the sinful nature. It is uh, true that in theology there are some who doubt even the existence of a sinful nature that uh, they would say that it has been totally eradicated at the time of uh, conversion. Um, but one of the reasons for taking this as present tense and Paul talking about Christian's experience is to understand that no, we still have in us uh, a sinful nature. You know, if, if you are a saved, regenerate, born-again person and you only had a new nature that always wanted to please God, there would be no battle. There would be no struggle. Um, and proof of the old nature's presence is that there is this struggle going on. Romans 7, 14 again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. It's a present tense. Note these descriptions in verses 20 and 21. For if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin, the, that monster that dwells in me. Verse 21. I find in the law that evil is present with me even though I will to do good evil is present with me verse 23 but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is where in me in my members so there is a presence in us of this uh, sin and the sin nature um Romans uh, 6, verse 12 and 13 says, do, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That passage would not be needed if there was not a problem of an old sin nature still present and active within you. Uh, listen to this passage in Galatians 5. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Paul is saying the same thing there in Galatians 5. And notice the present tense in Galatians 5. The spirit and uh, the, the flesh war against each other. So it is a continual present problem. Uh, then we see the activity of the sin nature. It's not just 
a benign substance which resides in you, but it is active. It is working against all good purposes. Verse 17, but I know it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The sin is, is active. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, let me explain something here, because uh, this could be misleading. Paul is not denying personal responsibility here when he says, it is not I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That People could take that as he's saying, I, okay, I didn't do it, I'm not responsible. It, just the opposite. Paul is saying that the problem is not located somewhere outside of him. It's not this person, or this event, or this environment, or this situation that makes me sin what the sin problem is internal Paul is saying it's inside of me again and again he says that right it's in me so far from denying responsibility he's saying I have responsibility and it's inside of me the problem inside me has to be dealt with um as Jesus said, it is out of the heart of man that, that come evil thoughts and so forth. Out of the heart. So in Romans 5, 6, and 7, sin is seen as an alien power that brings human beings under its dominion. Now, finally, the outcome of the struggle. <clears throat> the reason for defeat verse 18 for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I do not find even though I want to Paul says I can't in myself nothing good dwells I don't have the power within me even if I wanted to I couldn't that's the reason for defeat. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, notice that in the New Testament, we are never told to renew the flesh. We're told to renew the mind, right? So Paul says he's locating the problem in my flesh, but we're never told to renew the flesh we're told to renew the mind. What are we told to do with the flesh? The flesh cannot be improved. You can't have some self-improvement project with the flesh. It is the enemy. It must be recognized as the enemy and counted as crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 11. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. Romans 6, 6, I have been crucified with Christ. That's what you do with self. You reckon it, you count it to be so, crucified with Christ. You don't try to improve it. The willer may be willing, but that's never enough. So, the, the theme here is that the will without the power leaves us frustrated with sin so the cry for help comes in verse 24 oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death the, the wretchedness this cry for help Paul is recognizing how how useless he is in himself how wretched he is that he can't come up with the answer no matter how hard he tries, he just can't come up with the answer. It leaves him totally exhausted and wretched man that I am. Help must come from someone else. And that's what he finds in verse 25, the way to victory. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now he expands on that in uh, Romans chapter 8 which is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible 
So he's going to expand on what he means by this, and we'll see in the next few uh, messages. But he just gives a glimpse of the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God alone can supply the power. And God supplies this power through the Lordship of Christ. Remember that the issue is one of dominion. That sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Has no right to have dominion. But who will have dominion? Who is on the throne of your heart, so to speak? Is it you? Well, you need to be dethroned. And Christ needs to be there as the Lord of your life. It is not just Christ because he died for you. But Paul says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, as you bow before him and yield your life to the lordship of Christ and then the final victory as we continue with verse 25 I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin now this is Paul's conclusion after having given the answer he says so here's the, the, the state of affairs with the mind my own mind my desire I, I myself want to please God but with the flesh I will please sin so he's going to make a, a contrast between, between, uh, between flesh and the spirit in chapter 8 um, when he brings up flesh here again at the end but with the flesh the law of sin and notice verse 24 again how that verse ends oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death now several things to note here the, the word flesh in verse 25 but with the flesh I serve the law of sin relates back to the body of death who will deliver me from the body of this death and notice that it is a future tense we've noted all along that Paul has been speaking in present tense I do I am I will whatever here's the first time he uses a future tense and it points to the ultimate answer it is still in the future why do you have a struggle today if, if you believe in Christ? Why do you still have a struggle? It's because the ultimate final victory has not yet been attained. Who will deliver me? Future tense. In the future, I will be perfectly delivered. Um, it's not today... Or it's, and it's not the day of salvation it is the day of the redemption of all things it is the day of the resurrection in that day I will sin no more Paul is not just talking about how can I be made better but how can I be made perfect so that there is no sin that happens ultimately on the day of resurrection look at chapter 8 verse 23 for instance Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eager, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of what? Our body. The redemption of our body. When this body is resurrected on that day of resurrection, then we will be made complete. So it's so notice in verse 24 of chapter 7 he says who will deliver me from this body of death it's when we're no longer in this body so Romans 8 verse 10 and 11 and if Christ is in you the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give 
life, future tense, to your mortal bodies. You have spiritual life now, right? But your body will one day be resurrected. You will no longer have the, the flesh. You will no longer be of the flesh. And you'll have total victory. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's the key. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's the path to victory. Now, he talks about ultimate victory because it's good for us to know if we're in a struggle whether we're going to win or not. If, you, if you're in a battle with someone but you realize you, you could see into the future and you know, I'm not only going to survive this battle, I'm going to win this battle, then that gives you a whole lot more confidence. But if in the midst of the battle you're not sure whether you're going to win or lose, you know, it could go either way and you feel defeated all the time, then you might just give up. And so what Paul is doing here is he's pointing us to the future. You win. You are going to be perfected in Christ on that day of resurrection. It's going to happen. And for now, because you belong to God, by his spirit, you can have daily victory and grow towards the likeness of Christ. So don't give up the battle. Even if you struggle today, don't give up because he who began that good work in you will complete it until it is completely done. Right? So keep fighting. By the Spirit who is in you, devoting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, relying on the power of the Spirit that is in you and the guidance of the Word of God as we will see in Romans chapter 8, that is how we have victory. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, how we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices and resources, for we surely fail on our own. But you, God, have supplied not only uh, the shining of the light of the law on our hearts to see the, the sinfulness that dwells within us. But you are the answer. And we look to you, Lord Jesus, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification, that day by day we might live in you, that we would walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would indeed guide our lives and strengthen us to please you in everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.